It's only an ultimate defeat that you can show what you're really made of. Tom Shippey. I call a mindset of contempt of death and humor in the face of destruction and suffering the Viking mindset because it is so characteristic of the Vikings, such as the myth of the legendary king of Burgundy, Gunnar, and his mythical brother, Hogni. The myth of their deaths at the hands of the Hunnic king, Atli, Attila, is famous. The myth goes like this, as related in the Lay of Atli, not to be confused with the Greenlandic Lay of Atli. The king of the Burgundians, Gunnar, and his fictitious brother, Hogni, are sent a letter by the king of the Huns. Atli, who wants the treasure of their legendary family, the Nibelin family, sends them a letter, asking to talk and offering them all sorts of gifts, a fortune worth of them. But given that the treasure makes the Nibelins the richest men in the world, they don't care. They decide not to go, until they get a letter from their sister, Guthrun, the wife of Atli. They decipher the enigma of a letter as a trap. So naturally, since they are heroes of Vikings, they decide to go to the trap. Wait, what? Yeah, they walk willingly into the snare, knowing full well their lives will probably end as a result. When they get there, Hogni makes an excellent account of himself, slaying seven Hunnic soldiers before being bound. Then he throws one into a fire and is killed, quote-unquote. The Huns ask heroic Gunnar to tell them where exactly this treasure deep in the Rhine is. Gunnar doesn't tell them, but instead asks them for his brother's heart. That is suspicious, but they still want him to comply with their demands. They decide to cut out the heart of a lowly thrall, called Hjali, and bring it to Gunnar, who is disgusted by it. That's not the heart of a hero, says he. That is the big and soft heart of a coward. That is not the heart of my brother. End quote. They finally cut out Hogni's heart, and he laughs as they do it. When they bring him to Gunnar, uh, to, about, why did I say him? When they bring it to Gunnar, he laughs? Yes, he laughs, like a chump. It's absolutely hilarious. What, you might be thinking? What in the world is the joke? The joke is, Gunnar just tricked the Huns into killing one half of the people in the world who know where the treasure is. And he isn't going to talk. This slowly dawns on the Huns, and Atli is enraged. He throws Gunnar into the snake pit, where Gunnar defiantly plays the harp as he dies. Later on, Guthrun takes revenge on Atli and kills him, burns down his hall, and before that, fed him their sons. And that's not the only time this happened before in Viking mythology, but I, I don't think I mentioned it anywhere else in this post. Anyways, this story exemplifies one of the great virtues of Viking psychology, which I'm describing. The virtue of not ducking a challenge, or backing down from a threat or warning. No good warrior would back down from either a threat or warning, or duck a challenge. I will further refer to this as heroism in a very narrow sense. I was proofreading this, and I forgot to mention the poem Hildebrand's Lead, which is part of the Germanic heroic tradition, where Hildebrand, a German, flees the lands of Odoacer to the lands of Theodoric, and for thirty years remains in a foreign land until he meets his son. His son, Hadebrand, remains, and is ready to settle a battle between their two armies in single combat. When Hildebrand asks Hadebrand who his father was, Hadebrand tells the story of his father, and how he believes him to be dead. Hildebrand tries to call off the fight, but Hadebrand claims he is a trickster, and that the only reason he is so old now is because of deceit. Therefore, stating he is only alive now because he is a coward, the poem remarks how Hildebrand has been in the front ranks of every battle for his 30 years of service, but nonetheless, Hildebrand can't duck this challenge, not even with his own son's life at stake. They fight, and the outcome is left ambiguous. I think the story of Gunnar illustrated this point well enough, but I love the Hildebrand's lead too much to leave it out here. What are the other great virtues of Viking psychology? Courage in the face of death, CFD for short. One might call it suicidal courage. As Tom Shippey puts it in his excellent book, Laughing Shall I Die, 
bad sense of humor, or BSOH, the sense of humor that is, quote, grim. Laughing is best when it's done at the expense of an enemy. The story of Gunnar and Hogni touches on this when the joke is revealed. Indifference and calmness in the face of suffering or insult. I'm reminded of the story of Bowie, who had a part of his jaw chopped off. He responded simply with, The girls of Burnholm won't find it so pleasant to kiss me now. Calmness in the face of insult is also vital, but we'll get to that later, of course. Vengeance. Not immediate vengeance, but vengeance certainly. Resignation to one's fate, but don't give in. Absolutely no begging for mercy, for you are not entitled to it. Resignation to one's fate is so neatly described in the story of Ragnar. Ragnar's death song in the Snake Pit, which is certainly a tall tale, but still exemplifies the Viking ideal, where he doesn't express his hope for mercy. Instead, he laughs at Ayla, because his sons will soon come for vengeance, and Ayla will find himself facing a fate just as grim as Ragnar faces now. So what about calmness in the face of insult? You see, time and time again, in Norse tradition, such as when the Ragnarsons are informed of the death of their father, uh, they are calm in the face of insult or great uh, mental anguish, I suppose. One of the Ragnarsons grips a chess piece so tightly, blood oozes from his fingernails, but his countenance, his countenance remains completely calm. Nothing, no tint of anger, because showing your anger isn't very Viking of you. But the thing is, it's a virtue to have emotions. If you don't have emotions, there's nothing impressive about not showing them. Anyways, why is this a virtue? Famously, the Bible says, be slow to anger, which means don't be quick to judge. But a Viking interpretation of this would be more like, wait for the right moment, so your revenge is perfect. One of the Ragnarsons wishes to murder the messenger of Ayla, who relates the story of the snake pit. But Ivar the Boneless says no. He's another son of Ragnar, by the way. He says no. Why? Because there will be a time for a better, more personal vengeance later. This leads nicely into the Viking virtue of vengeance. Again, referencing the Bible, it says that vengeance is bad, but in the context of a society populated by Norsemen where an impersonal government does not exist, the only way to justify oneself is to kill those who murder their kin or wrong them in some way. So it's no surprise that the Vikings, who are more violent than even regular Norsemen, created many stories to explain further the ideal of revenge. Nidud, or Nithus, or Nithus, Nithus? I don't know. Nidus, <laughs> the king of the Nars, of I think it's Sweden, Swedish people, oppressed the poor smith Voland, mutilating him so he couldn't run and locking him away. Naturally, Voland resents this. He's ticked, but he doesn't lash out. No, no, he formulates a plan. First, he murders Nidus' sons, then rapes his daughter, Buthvild, Buthvilth, and she is with child. What? Isn't he a hero? Well, yeah. Even though he murders two children and rapes a presumably underage girl, while she is drunk nonetheless, he is still the hero of his story. Why? Because his revenge is cunning. He doesn't just murder Nidus' sons, he makes things out of their mutilated corpses which are used by Nidus and his also evil queen. This sort of concealed vengeance is perfect at first, but to complete it, he has to reveal it. But even then, it's not devastating enough. Volan knows punishment's awaiting, but before he did these deeds, he crafted himself wings. I like to imagine that he only flies away immediately after Nidus realizes the situation he's found himself in. This is an amazing vengeance, as one moment Nidus controlled Volan's life, but now Nidus has been laid low and feels powerless in the face of Volan. That just sounds evil, doesn't it? But to the Vikings, it's great. The Vikings imagine Volan as a hero because A, vengeance for his being wronged by Nidus, B, he manages to do something humorous as Nidus doesn't realize he's drinking out of a goblet made of his son, C, his vengeance is well thought out.
One of the virtues that will surely confound modern readers is resign oneself to your fate, but don't give in. Isn't that contradictory? No, but by resign yourself to your fate, I don't mean sit down and do nothing. I mean, don't try to avoid your inevitable fate, which has already been decreed by the Norns in Norse religion. That being said, don't fight against your fate, but always resist whoever tries to bring it upon you. Resist not to stop your fate, resist out of principle. Norse religion has one main example, the gods themselves. They all know they shall die at Ragnarok, and that the world will perish in the flames of the fire giant Surtur with his fiery sword. Thor knows that he will be poisoned to death by Jormungandr, but he doesn't surrender to Jormungandr. Odin knows he will be swallowed by Fenrir, but he doesn't try to negotiate with Fenrir. Freyr knows that Surtur will kill him, but he doesn't beg Surtur for mercy. This is perplexing to the moderns. On the topic of mercy, they were not entitled to it. Modern soldiers are typically under the impression that mercy, in the case of surrendering, is something they are entitled to. Not so for a Viking. In fact, during the Norse route at the Battle of Clontarf in 1014, a certain Thorstein kneels to tie his shoes. And when an Irish warrior asks why, he says that his home of Iceland is too far away to run to. He doesn't at one point ask for mercy. Why would he? Even if he was entitled to it, it would be dishonorable to ask your opponent to spare you. Putting yourself at their mercy, however, as Forstein does, is honorable, as it shows you're not afraid of them. One virtue I haven't mentioned so far is the virtue of loyalty, which brings me to the story of Thormod, the Skald. He is the Skald to Olaf Haraldsson, better known as Olaf the Stout. Olaf leads his small army on the path to Nidoros, but a large, large army of pagan minor nobles and peasants and yeomen and stuff stand in his way. He's not the only Norwegian king to face death for his Christianity. Hakon the Good died in 961, of wounds stained at the Battle of Fityar, overthrown for his Christianity. Olaf I, Tryggvason, died in 1000 at Svolder for his Christianity. He knows his death is near, so naturally he chooses to make his last stand at Stiklestadur, and the night before the battle his skald sings to him of how soldiers will rise on the morrow and march out to battle to endure their certain deaths. On 29th July, 1030, it turns out he was right. The whole army is annihilated. Someone shoves a spear up Olaf's mail shirt, and he sustains other blows from an axe. However, Thormode survives. Most would thank Jesus, but he's not interested in life without his king. As soon as he laments his survival, he is struck by an arrow from out of nowhere. He composes a poem, which is finished by 15-year-old Harald Sigurdsson, Herod Hardrada, very famous guy, before dying. This is unrelated, but I wanted to mention that the Viking concept of honor didn't pre prevent trickery, such as when Hjordvathr attacks the halls in Lera of the great king Herodfer Kraki, killing all his champions, with the exception of the weakest, Vogar. Vogar had given Herodfer his nickname and vowed to avenge him if he died by violence. So the only logical thing for Herodfer to do is to give Vogar his sword to pledge allegiance to him. Vogar agrees only to cut Herodfer down and then be killed in turn. This is slightly related to the concept of loyalty, since Vogar could survive the situation if that was his ultimate goal, but however, it's not. He'd rather stick to his oath of avenging Herodfer uh, Kraki. Similar to the idea of keeping true to one's vows, I am reminded of the story of the Jomsvikings at Hirungavag in 986. Sigvaldi had become the new leaders of the Jomsvikings and led an army to attack the Jarl of Leda, who was called Hakon, and his son, who was called Aida Kakonerson. Sigvaldi cowardly fled, but in order to retreat, but with an order to retreat, but Vagan Akoson, who had joined the Jomsvikings when he was 12, and I should probably explain that story I'm thinking right now, actually. I should probably explain how, how he joined. Okay, I'll do it right now. He, he killed three men by the time he was nine, by the way. I forgot to mention that. 
And anyways, so the reason this is happening, by the way, they go to Hirungavagar. I didn't explain it very well. I put it in a footnote. I shouldn't have done that, but, but here it is. Here's the reason. In a banquet hosted by Svein, all sorts of Yelms Vikings make vows. Sigvaldi vows to drive out Jarl Hakon from his land, which is basically suicidal. And the thing is, Svein got all the Yelms Vikings drunk because he wanted to take vengeance on them. He wanted them to make this oath that he knew would be deadly to fulfill. And that's that's a part of the that's part of the plan for revenge, you know what I mean? Anyways, so Svein, he Sigvaldi vows to drive out Jarl Hakon from his land, which is suicidal, and Bowie the Stout makes such an oath. And all sorts of the Yom Vikings, when pressed by Spain, affirm their intention to follow Sigvaldi. However, when he comes to Wagen, Wagen affirms his intention to follow Sigvaldi, but decides to add his own part. I will kill Thorkel Leira, and then have sex with his daughter without the consent of her family. I imagine the hall went silent, and then Spain is like, Okay, what about you, Sigurd? <laughs> by the way, Sigvaldi is also a coward, because he only gives the vow after Spain gets him drunk. Sigvaldi doesn't remember the next day, so when he's reminded, he claims that a man is not himself when drunk. He kind of tries to excuse it, but nonetheless agrees to execute his vow. Svein provides him 60 big ships, leading Sigvaldi with 120 ships total. It's a lot of ships. Anyways. But before I tell you the story of the battle, I am going to tell you the story of how Wagen joined the Jomsvikings. He, he, he wanted to join when he was 12, and the current leader of the Yomes Vikings, Paul Natoki, said, "Okay, only if you win a only if you win a ship on ship duel with Sigvaldi." So, except Sigvaldi ended up getting to have two ships, while Wagen only had one. But Wagen, in the end, won the duel. And like I said, Sigvaldi's a coward because he marries the daughter of Burislav, Astrith, uh, because he fulfills an oath to Burislav, the king of the Vins. He, he fulfills an oath to Burislav to capture Svein, and he does that through trickery. That's why Svein wants to take vengeance on him. Okay, I know I explained that terribly, but anyways, to the actual battle. The Yom's Vikings, since they made that oath, they set out to attack the Jarl of Leda after Sigvaldi's silly oath. They attack a town, and Wagen cuts the arm off of a guy called Germunder, a town official. However, Germunder escapes to warn Hakon of Leda, telling him he will soon be under attack. Hakon assembles a gigantic fleet of 360 ships and anchors them at Hjurungavag Creek, quote-unquote. I assume that means a fjord, but maybe it's just bad translation. Wagen goes to get food for the fleet when it anchors nearby and takes the livestock of a certain Ulfer. Ulfer tells them that Hakon is in Hjurungavag. Also, Wagen kills Ulfer later for trying to escape a Jomsviking ship with a javelin. Anyways, the Jomsviking's ready for battle. And here's a quote from the saga of the Jomsvikings. All agreed that there was no engagement fiercer than this. The battle was brutal and an even contest until Thorgather and Eitha, two sisters, grant Hakon victory because he sacrifices his seven-year-old son to them. The sisters cause a great hailstorm, and Thorgather shoots lethally accurate arrows from her fingertips onto the Jomsvikings. Eitha starts doing the same, and Sigvaldi tells his men that since they are fighting witches, not men, they need not uphold their vows, which is why he's a coward, by the way. Also, remember how Bowie says the girls of Burn Home won't find it so pleasant to kiss me now after having his jaw chopped off? Yeah, well, that happened at this battle. Anyways, the Elms Vikings refuse to retreat, and they're all captured. Most of them are. Well, well, I say most of them are. Not all of them. There's one, there's one, because the thing is, after the battle, the, the Norwegians withdraw, but they don't sink all the ships, so every ship still has like a few stragglers left on it, but not enough to sail away. 
So at the night, then the Norwegians withdraw and leave some of the survivors alone. They come back the, the following day for them. There's one, the day after the battle, like I said, they left some still occupied ships. While they're celebrating their victory the day after, a relative of Hakon was struck by an arrow and killed. So the Norwegians rowed to the ship from which the arrow came, where they find a footless guy called Havarthard. Whom did my arrow strike? said Havarthard. Guthbrandr, a kinsman of the Jarl, they said back to him. Too bad, said Havarthard. I was aiming for the Jarl. <laughs> the Norwegians then execute him for his uh, impertinence. That was his uh, That was his reward for being really cool as he gets executed. Anyways, 70 Yom's Vikings are captured the following day from Wagen's ship, and Hakon orders them all to be executed. So they all get tied up with sticks placed in their hair, and they are to be beheaded. The executioner asks every time what they think about dying. I will now quit the saga. I am content to die. I shall suffer the same fate of my, of my, as my father, says the fourth man. What was that, says the executioner. Strike, he died. <laughs> that's, that's the fourth man's joke. I would forget the laws of the Yom's Vikings if I was afraid of my death or spoke words of fear. No one can escape death, says the fifth man. I think it best to die with a good reputation, but you shall live on in shame, he says to the sixth. Or, no, he doesn't say that to the sixth. The sixth says that to him. The executioner that is. I'm very content to die, but deal me out a speedy blow. Here I have a dagger. We Yom's Vikings have long pondered whether a man knew anything after he lost his head, if it came off speedily. Let us make the following arrangement, that I shall hold the dagger up if I know anything. Otherwise, it shall fall down. Needless to say, it falls down. Rip the seventh young Viking. The eighth man says another silly thing, but finally we come to the ninth man. He demands to be beheaded from the front so everyone may see that he does not pale from the blow. The tenth man isn't a stoic. He asks simply to relieve himself. When he is done, he makes a sexual comment about sleeping with Arl Hakon's wife. This so angers Hakon that he orders him to be executed without delay. The eleventh man is called Svein. He's younger than the Yom's Vikings normally allow. He's seventeen. He has long golden hair, and he asks a warrior to hold it forward so it does not become blood-stained. When the axe comes down, he jerks his head back, severing the hands of the poor warrior who held it. He then comically comments, Whose hands are in my hair? <laughs> Presumably, everyone began to laugh. When asked who his father is, he says, Bowie the Stout. When asked how old he is, he says, If I survive this year, I shall be eighteen. Eirik, Hakon's son, says, You shall, and spares him, much to the chagrin of the Jarl. The next man comes, who, when asked whether he is content to die, says, Yes, provided I fulfill the next part of my oath. What's your name, says Eirik? Vagen, and I am the son of Aka. What's your oath, says Eirik? I shall kill Thorkel Era, and then have sex with his daughter without the consent of her relatives. Silence, I presume. And who is the beheader? I, I, I neglected to mention it till now, but who is the beheader? But Thorkelera of all people. What a coincidence. I shall prevent that, says Thorkel, charging forward like a ship rowed by the strongest men of the world. Sadly for Thorkel, Bjorn the Welshman, Vagen's adoptive father, pushes Vagen out of Thorkel's way, causing Thorkel to stumble and accidentally cut the rope that binds Vagen. Vagen picks up the sword and slays Thorkel. Now, says Vagen, I'm that much more satisfied. <laughs> Kill him immediately, says Hakon, but Eirik stops him from killing him. Hakon comments it is no use arguing with the obstinate Eirik, so Eirik tells Hakon that Vagen shall take Thorkel's place in his retinue. Vagen says that he would consider it better to endure the same fate as all the other Jamsvikings. Eirik, after talking to Bjorn the Welshman, spares them all. There's a brief epilogue in the saga of the Jomsvikings. Vagen is given permission to marry Ingbjörg, 
though given he had claimed he wanted to bed her without the consent of her family, he may originally have had dishonorable intentions. Wagen lives happily ever after with Ingeborg. Bjorn the Welshman is old and a foster father to Wagen, so he goes back to Wales to rule over his lands. No one knows what happens to poor Bui, the father of Svein, but some say he became a serpent to guard his gold in the seas around Hirungavag. Thorkell the Tall fought with the Yelms Vikings and goes on to help Knuth the Great conquer England. Jarl Hakon won great things for his victory, but they didn't last, because he died in 995 at the hands of Olaf or Tryggvason. Anyways, the story of the Yelms Vikings ends with these simple words. So this is not an exaggeration, this is the truth. This is what they end with, exactly. This is the end of the story of the Yelms Vikings. <laughs> it just ends. She's like, yep, yeah, this is the end. Uh, anyways, there are sure a lot of uh, virtues presented in the saga of the Yelms Vikings. Uh, and there's some unvirtues. For example, Thorkell dies because he's he wants to take revenge instantly. He doesn't wait. He's not smart about it, you know what I mean? Because he could have won. He could have just beheaded Vagen, and that would have been the end of it. But since he charges forward in a rage, he gets killed himself. And then Vagen's oath comes true. Anyways, so to recap, the Vikings were complex. They were suicidally brave, comedic, obstinate, loyal, brutal, and laconic. But despite all the virtues and stuff that I made mention of, what I particularly like is the great stories involved. When I read the saga of the Yom's Vikings, I, when I read it, not read it, what the heck? When I read the saga of the Yom's Vikings, I was on the edge of my seat. When I read the lay of Atli, I was entertained. When I read Norse history, it was, endless, it was endlessly awesome, epic, and mythically cool. Anyways, that's the end. Here are all my main sources. Thomas A. Shippey, Laughing Shall I Die, The Lives and Deaths of the Great Vikings. Anonymous, Poetic Edda, translated by Benjamin Thorpe. Anonymous, Saga of the Yom's Vikings, translated by N.F. Blake. Anonymous, Hildebrand's Lead, translated by D.L. Ashleyman. Grammaticus, Saxo, Gesta Denorum, translated by Oliver Elton.